Time-wise, there's not much left of the federal fiscal year, less than three months now. Money-wise, it's a different story. Agencies will spend around $217 billion between now and September 30th, more than half by the Defense Department. Contractors, especially small businesses, need to make sure their pipelines are clear to get some of that money in. That's according to my next guest, federal sales and marketing consultant Larry Allen joins me now. And it does have a little bit of a weird feeling this year because of just the the debt deal came and now there's still no budget. And so it could be a full year CR coming. But we do have the rest of this fiscal. So what's the best advice for contractors for the time left? Tom, I think the best advice for contractors is essentially what you inferred, and that is this is the time to strike. Now is the time where you have opportunities, where there is money to be spent by federal agencies. I wouldn't say don't worry about October, but October is a few months away yet, and there really is not much that is within our control to change the political uh, appropriations and budgeting process. So now is the time to focus on finishing the year strong and getting as much business in the door as you can. If you're a small business, I think it's useful to know that according to Bloomberg government, the top 10 federal agencies need to spend $28 billion with small firms just during this quarter in order to make their small business contracting goals. That's a lot of opportunity, Tom. And within that, the Department of Veterans Affairs, surprisingly, I think, has the most ground to make up. So if you're looking for some places to target, particularly if you already have some business with the VA in the pipeline, that could be a good focus area. Right. And because so much of the dollars will be going through the government-wide acquisition contracts, the popular ones, which are task orders and not really you know, new contracts in that sense, technically, then you might have a better shot in that route than trying something from a brand new full and open competition, if there even are any more launched in the next couple of months. Tom, I would emphasize that this is the time of year that it's difficult for agencies to do full and open competitions. Will they do them? Of course they will. Full and open competition, your basic start from square one procurement is always part of the government acquisition market. However, asking your government customer to do that when there is time ticking on the clock and other alternatives available could be a very tough sell on top of what it is you're trying to sell them in terms of a solution. We look at the statistics every year. This year, the estimates are that 60% of total dollars or over $130 billion, Tom, are going to go through those standing IDIQ contracts, things like the GSA schedules, the NASA soup program in DOD, you have the CIOSP programs and the Navy next gen contracts. So, There's plenty of going on uh, in that IDIQ area. Key here is you need to focus on the things that are in your pipeline, but you also need to be able to answer the how question. That is, how do I get to you? And if it's an IDIQ contract that either you or a partner have, that's great. If it's a small business set aside, that's great. Simplified acquisition, that's okay. Uh, But you better have some easy readily identifiable ways to make it that much easier for the customer to get the solution from you because 
If they can't get it from you, they might be able to get it from a competitor. We're speaking with Larry Allen, president of Allen Federal Business Partners. And there is this new Homeland Security set of regulations coming out only after six years it took them to get them out on how contractors must handle CUI, controlled unclassified information. And these are supposed to be in solicitations immediately starting, I think, the end of July. Could that actually affect things this year, do you think? Tom, it certainly could affect things this year if you're doing business with the Department of Homeland Security. Ironically, this agency has kind of leapfrogged over their colleagues at the Department of Defense and come out with an interim rule on on how contracts are going to handle controlled, unclassified information. And what's interesting about this, Tom, is two things. First of all, DHS came out first. Second, they're not using the same definition or baselines of what constitutes CUI as the Department of Defense is using. DHS came up with its own definition of what constitutes CUI. It's a little bit more expansive in some ways than the DOD definition. And then the other part is that uh, the standard by which the Department of Homeland Security is implementing CUI is different again from what the Department of Defense is purportedly going to be using when they come out with their own uh, rule, which is expected to be sometime in the next few months. And this, as NIST is in the middle of a revision of the standards that it issues for CUI, and that's going to be later when that comes out, they're still evaluating comments. That's right. What we're referring to here, Tom, is the NIST 800-171 standard on how contractors or anyone that handles sensitive, controlled, unclassified information, or even federal contract information, which has its own definition, is handled. And the key here, as you inferred, is that that NIST standard itself is changing. So companies that have already made investments and coming up to speed on complying with the current NIST standard, which has been in place for a while, and the coming Uh, CMMC standard that the Department of Defense is supposed to come out with soon are going to have to invest even more to ensure that their systems are compliant with whatever the new standard happens to be. Yeah, so some work to do there, and uh, you got to keep your eyes open. And finally, I just wanted to discuss with you the idea of just keeping your priorities as a contractor, because with all that money floating around, it looks like you could just sort of plunge in and and reach around for it. But it doesn't work that way, does it, in reality, especially as the year winds up? Tommy, you're exactly right. Whether you're a government contractor or a government agency, no one I know has the resources to be everywhere at once. You simply have to prioritize the things that are important to you. Right now, if you're a government contractor, That means starting to prioritize the opportunities that are in your pipeline, not necessarily what are the biggest, but what are the best? What are the ones that you're most likely to have? And then you have to commit the resources based on that evaluation. If you don't commit the necessary resources to pursue the most likely or most lucrative pieces of business, then you're going to spread yourself too thin and you run the risk of not doing any one thing particularly well. But I would hasten to add that there's absolutely a lesson here for federal agencies. Federal agencies, particularly right now, are trying to implement lots of different policy changes pushed by the administration. 
whether it's socioeconomic or environmental or some other type of initiative that the administration has. These are all perceived goods by the people in power. And yet you can't have agencies doing all of them at once because that's going to lead to frustration. It's going to lead to a lot of confusion, lead to confusion, ironically, not just with contractors, but with people that you're serving. We hear a lot about customer experience. Well, if you confuse your customers, that's certainly going to be an experience, Tom. So whether you're a contractor or a government agency, it's important to do the tough work, have some leadership and prioritize what's most important on your to-do list. Larry Allen is president of Allen Federal Business Partners. Great advice. Thanks for being with us. Tom, thank you, and I wish your listeners happy selling. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, and so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty 
to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president at Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet 
Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about traveling, getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.